we need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back, dear listener. We're up to episode 91 of the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. It's the 13th of April, 2017, and we feature the return of right-wing Tony. How are you? Fine, Mr. Fist, fine. (laughs) Recent developments in free speech, notwithstanding, you're okay? No, I can't say I'm comfortable at all, to tell you the truth, but anyway. (laughs) So I don't know how much uh, ADNC or free speech we'll talk about, but we'll, we've got a number of just classic uh, Iron Fist Velvet Glove topics to go through, right wing Tony. And I thought, seeing it's been in the news, uh, we should look at Syria, because b- between the two of us we could come up with some expert opinions on what's going on in the Middle East. The Muddle East. <laughs> the Muddle East. <laughs> so, dear listener... Uh, This is a topic that we covered previously uh, a while ago, but it originates from an article sent to me from uh, from Karen. And one explanation for the the way that the sides set up in the whole Syrian conflict is to do with a natural gas line. So there's a link to the article with a really good map that describes what's going on. But essentially you've got a natural gas field which um, Qatar can access and Iran can access. So Qatar can access about three-quarters of it and Iran about a quarter. And Qatar um, would very much like to sell its natural gas to Europe. Uh, Great market. Problem is you can't ship natural gas by ship because it's just too expensive. You need a pipeline for it to be effective. And the big problem for Qatar is that any pipeline that they're going to come up with has to basically go through Syria. So they, uh, the Qataris have a proposal for a, a gas pipeline which would uh, run through Saudi Arabia, Syria and Turkey and end up in Bulgaria. Uh, the competing pipeline is the Iranian version which will go through Iraq, Syria and doesn't need to go through Turkey because it goes under the sea. And... The way this has worked out with the competing groups is uh, uh, with Assad in Syria, who, uh, which pipeline he's going to allow to go through. So it seems that Assad has been uh, definitely against the Qatari pipeline and more in favour of the Iranian pipeline. So that makes sense on a religious level because Assad being an Alawite, being a division of the Shia sect... And you've got the Iranians who are Shia, so that helps on the religious line. But um, the Qataris, of course, are pouring in heaps of money for the opposition forces in Syria. And the argument would be that they want to topple Assad in the hope that somebody else is in control in Syria and allows them to build their pipeline through. Uh, Turkey is, um, is also part of that... Qatari pipeline, so that would explain why they are also opposing the Assad regime on certain levels. And Saudi Arabia is wanting it as well, and the US is an ally of Saudi Arabia and uh, just doesn't like Iran, let's face it. I mean, who does? Right-wing Tony? (laughs) No, I'm not fond. (laughs) 
So, um, so then you ask, well, what's, what's the Russian position in all this? And, of course, Russia at the moment supplies about a quarter of the gas to Europe. And they don't want any new players coming into the arena to sell natural gas. So their first option would be no pipeline at all. And what you could see happening is that whenever Assad has been in trouble and likely to lose, uh, Putin and the Russians have supplied resources and firepower to keep him going. So it's in their interest for the conflict to last as long as possible because while ever there's a conflict in Syria, there's no gas pipeline and and they continue with, uh, with their ability to threaten the NATO countries with withdrawing gas. So, so, dear listener, when you're standing around the water cooler on a Monday morning discussing world events, you can, you can throw in the gas pipeline as the, as the rationale for everything that's going on over there. Make sense to you, right-wing Tony? Oh, look, um, I call it the Muddle East because everyone that's there is there for a different reason like this sounds a logical explanation for some people's involvement but candidly I don't think if there was an argument or strategic issues about gas it'd be a peaceful region Um, you only have to look at them to realize they're not playing with a full deck none of them and they've been fighting probably since Roman times or before and We need to stand off and stay out of it. And my personal view is let them go for it uh, as hard as they can and we'll then be dealing with what's left over and hopefully it'll be fewer of them and one would expect a normal outcome of a huge war between Shia and Sunni and whoever else sticks their nose in will be that there'll be an enormous number of casualties and um, the West and secular parts of the world will then have to deal with whatever forces emerge from that and hopefully... It's just a matter of numbers. There'll be fewer of them for us to deal with. That's the right-wing Tony view Correct. of the world. Correct. Yep. Um, look, I don't... Uh, you know, there's always there'll be a bunch of reasons, but the more I think about it, the more I think it's certainly one of the more um, compelling reasons for someone like Qatar to get involved, who normally, you know... Yeah, I, I think don't underestimate religion like mm-hmm. I know you've got some strong views uh, about religion and, and the damage it's wrought on the world. So Tony before we um, get on to talk about what Donald Trump's been up to I thought we'd just recap on the on the players in Syria at the moment and where we're at there so at the end of 2016 there were five major coalitions with conflicting objectives. We had Assad's forces and their allies. We had Arab-led opposition forces, Kurdish-led opposition forces, Jabhat Fatah al-Sham, which is part of the Al-Qaeda, or formerly Al-Qaeda group, and Islamic State. So five players there, none of whom have uh, characteristics that we would be applauding in a hurry. Uh, Hard to find one that we would want to be a likely winner there various realignments and it's a little bit like the life of Brian where we had the People's Front of Judea and the Popular Front of Judea so you know dear listener you know life is imitating art in Syria in this format because uh, Jabat Fatah al-Sham JFS uh, they dissolved and merged with four other organisations the Al-Zenki movement the Truth Brigade 
the army of al-Sunnah and the supporters of Religion Front. So there, a new coalition called the Organisation for the Liberation of the Levant, HTS. And there's a little opposition group against them made up of five smaller armed organisations, the most important being Hawks of the Levant, the Army of Islam Idhib Sector, and the Levantine Front. <laughs> what a mishmash. Of, muddle. Yes, yeah, the Muddle East. Muddle. That's yeah. good, Tony. So, so in recent times, dear listener, of course, there was the chemical attack and people all over the world, including Donald Trump, decided that a line had been crossed and that meant that it was appropriate for the United States of America to drop some bombs on Assad's airfield. And Tony... I, for one, just don't get it. For some reason, it's okay to blow people up with conventional weapons, which has been going on now for years, and thousands of kids dying. But for some reason, people just say, oh, that's a chemical attack that's completely different, and now all these other things are possible. It just doesn't make sense to me. No, no, it doesn't make any sense. Like, a death's a death, the maiming's a maiming. That, that illustrious group of thespians that you outlined there that have all got some interest in this, it's like being asked to pick your favourite criminal bikey gang. Like, which one would you really like to be the ascendant bikey gang at the Gold Coast here under the rollback of the Vlad laws? And hmm. I suppose sooner or later we'll, we'll get to see that played out. Um, that's why I, my constant theme with all of this is let them go, go for it, go hard, go strong. And we'll deal with what's left. Mm. And it would be like asking me, uh, would you like to see the CFMEU merge with another criminal organisation, <laughs> the MUA? No, probably not. I don't think anything good will come from that merger. And Trump, God knows why we're still there. We should stand off, protect Israel and just let it go and then deal with what's left, mm. see what's left. But we can't fix it. It's unfixed. It's been going for centuries, and it'll continue to go. Yeah. And wherever they are on the planet, in significant numbers, there's a fight. There's a shit fight on. That mm. they, they can't play peacefully. Mm. So it wouldn't matter which group was ascendant or anything. They'll just keep going for it. And with your pipelines and all that, they'll just blow them up. Mm. Whatever group loses, will just come back and take out the pipeline that was so hard fought for and hard won. Mm. Yeah. And it'll just play on. At the end of the day, it would have been much better for the Syrians had Assad been allowed just to continue on in peace and none of this had blown up uh, six well, or seven it, years it, ago. Well, I don't think it's improved anyone's mm. lot. Mm. And Iraq, you, it's hard to say that that's an improvement. Like, mm. you know, Hussein was a villainous person, but you've got villains all over the planet. You've got Mugabe in Rhodesia or Zimbabwe, mm. whatever they call it now, and... Jacob Zuma's well on the way to taking South Africa down. Underneath mm. him, Hugo Chavez has been replaced by Maduro or someone in Venezuela. Never gets better. Mm. Yep. So, uh, like, there's a lot of people in the sort of atheist, secular world who I agree with a lot, like there's Majid Nawaz and different players like that, and I'm really shocked that guys like him have come out and said that for the first time they agree with Donald Trump and they think that the bombing that he did recently was a great thing. And the, the danger in that is someone like Donald Trump is seeing, a, for the first time, people applauding his actions, and that's for you know, bombing another country without permission from anybody. And 
uh, that's just going to encourage him to do it again. Like, for the first time in his presidency, Trump has actually had the heat off him and starting to get some applause. And... Uh, I think he's, he's looking for a point of difference to Obama, who, as, as best I see it, was asleep at the wheel, threatened a lot of things and did very little... Um, and Trump, it may well be, didn't bomb this Syrian airbase for anything to do with chemical weapons being used on children and civilians. But he was actually sending a more broad geopolitical message, as I see it, to people like North Korea. Because they've been sort of sanctions notwithstanding. They just keep on going with testing new and more powerful weapons and everything that they say is is hyper-aggressive in terms of taking the war to the US and South Korea and other parts of their part of Asia. And it may well be that Trump's bombing there had nothing to do with the Syrian conflict because it was largely ineffective. They gave warning to the Russians ahead mm. of time. The Russians all moved. The Russians told the Syrians they got as many men and material out of the airstrip as they could. And I saw some report a day or so ago that said the, operation, the airport was operational again. So mm. I got no idea. And candidly, I don't really care what they do to one another as long as Australians don't get killed in the mix, but Trump may be sending a a not-too-subtle message to North Korea that I'm as mad as a cut snake, Mm. and you better believe it when I say I'm not happy with what you're doing, that I actually mean I'm not happy with you doing, and it could very well be the first time that man with an incredibly bad haircut in North Korea (laughs) gets a wake-up call and starts to think, shit, Pyongyang or whatever it's called, my capital may cease to exist and with me in it yes. before I get a chance because I think if the Americans hit North Korea they won't tell anyone other than the Chinese and the Chinese at the end of the day probably couldn't care less about their brothers why, why would they bother why would they bother doing anything in North Korea why? Uh, the, Americans, the Americans yeah because he's building he's got nuclear weapons the guy right. at, the, at the head of the queue okay. is, is a sociopath okay he killed his own brother okay so I don't think so he's worried the, about it's killing the nuclear threat yeah, oh, and right. a, the projection of the nuclear right. threat. Like it's, it, yeah. we've had sort of that that mm. tolerance or mutually assured destruction that's kept mm. everyone at bay. It seems mm. for a considerable period of time since the end of World War Two, and they've all understood that that's a place we don't want to go to. Mm. But this guy, if you think Trump is crazy, then you really need to have a hard look at the guy with the bad haircut. Because mm. he's completely off his jobs. We've got two guys with bad hair who are putting Correct. the world at Correct, yeah, danger. putting the world at risk. But I'd prefer to see North Korea cease to exist one sunny morning because I think it'll be a great improvement in the health of the planet and the safety of that part of Asia. Well, and I don't think, candidly, anyone will miss them. Because well, if, if the no one else eats dogs, if, as far as I'm aware. If, if the leadership of, of North Korea <laughs> ceased to exist, that would be a good thing. But there's some, just some very poor, unlucky people who have yeah, to be well, born in North happens. Korea. Like, I mean, you know, they should have got rid of him, but they haven't got the wherewithal. Yeah. And see, they're so heavily indoctrinated, it seems. That's that right. You'd never get through to them. It'd be no. like trying to say to the people in the Middle East, the Muslims, you've got to live in peace with your brother Shia and Sunni and the Alawites and the Kurds and the Yazidis. Not going to happen. And the Jews. And the, yeah, well, they, yeah, they <laughs> want to exterminate the Jews, like finish what Hitler started. But, like, they're just... They need to be taken out. Mm. That's my personal view, and it's my, it's my yes. absolute personal view, because no-one else supports me on that. <laughs> I'm happy 
that I'm the only one that thinks that way. <laughs> Here's one of the problems with everybody applauding Trump. is There's absolutely no authority for this action. Like, if you do take the view that chemical weapons are bad and a line is crossed and something must be done, then it's a very dangerous situation to say that it's OK for America to unilaterally decide in the dead of night that it's just going to drop some bombs on a country on the other side of the world who isn't posing any threat to America itself. Really, if you think that a line's been crossed and something needs to be done, you should still take the view that we need some sort of United Nations authorization because we just can't have the US dropping bombs on anyone whenever it feels like it because the danger is at some point they'll drop a bomb on somebody that you actually like and you'll go, well, that's not fair. And it's, well, you've set a precedent by saying it's, it's entirely up to them when and where they drop bombs. We have to control America's desire to just willy-nilly drop bombs when they feel like but it. But it's not just America that are dropping bombs. Like, everyone's focused on the West and men with bad hairstyles in the US administration. Like, I mean... Putin is dropping bombs wherever he feels like it. There's atrocities committed everywhere, and relying on the UN to do anything is just... Like, I can't even believe you said that to me, Mr Fist. (laughs) (laughs) That organisation... I didn't say say they would. Yeah, no, but they can't. They're they're moribund. They can't... The Security Council locks and blocks every time, so wait. it's like waiting for Godot. The the UN is the theatre of the absurd. Nothing of any significant... Like... but that's Saudi Arabia is in charge of the Human Rights Commission there. Yes. Like, I mean, that's just the silliest thing I've heard. Yes. So, so this is where you say we need some old changes in the, in the United Nations. Yeah, so but that, while we wait for... That's never going to happen. Yeah, and you're waiting for it to happen. But, People are getting but, killed but, everywhere. But why are we in a hurry for America to be able to drop a bomb? Well, they dropped it in the wrong but, place. They needed to drop it on the presidential <laughs> palace where Assad lives. And he yeah. might have got the message that if I do these things, there's actually a consequence when his family disappears or are vaporised by something that the US sent to him. Uh, My view of this is you can't hit them with bamboo matchsticks. You need to hit them with a really big piece of lumber. Yes, but we've already looked at the alternatives running around in Syria. Great. We dropped a bomb. Assad's out of the picture. We're either going to get ISIS or Al-Qaeda. No, no, no. Just let them go. Because Here's my point. Don't drop a bomb. Let them go. No, but if if everyone's clamouring about that the US should be seen to do something about Assad because he's a badass and you're going to continue Obama's sort of asleep at the wheel regime, we'll just stir the pot a bit, get rid of Assad and just see where it takes them. And it's going to take them to a very dark place because they cannot play happily together in a sandpit. And they haven't been able to Mm. since the very beginning. Mm. And for as long as they're there, there's going to be problems. Mm. That's my worldview. Whenever I look at them and see them in significant numbers, Mm. there's an absence of peace. It's a religion of peace Mm. that leaves people in pieces, basically. (laughs) Yes. Don't disagree with you there, but it's the intervention (laughs) by the US which doesn't progress anything but sets, no but they may be pre- thinking that they've got a blunt russia in a geopolitical sense it, it, otherwise the us's allies will lose lose faith in whatever alliances and yeah. i know you have problems with alliances but mm. 
at the end of the day, they may be doing this for a bundle of reasons that have got nothing to do with Syria. Yep, yep. but so, say there's an internal dispute in some, in some country, you know, in Europe where there's some sort of civil war breaks up and Russia sides with one group against another and decides to bomb one of them because, you know, they felt there were atrocities committed against their group. I mean, we couldn't say you can't do that because we've just watched America do it but and we didn't complain. That's been happening forever. In Angola, the Cubans were in there with Russian support, supporting um, oh, whoever it was, UNITA or one of those organisations, which basically was an acronym for hate, whatever they were called. And the South Africans with Western support were in there and a lot of mm. South African men I know who were conscripted were sent to Angola mm. to fight there it, it's it's bigger than all of us it's it's all the longer I look at this it's all there's geopolitical reasons that we can't even fathom and the reasons that are attached to why Trump's done this to this airport so anywhere around the world somewhere else anywhere around the world uh, if an atrocity is, is committed by one group against another mm. in some two-bit country in Africa or whatever, uh, an atrocity is committed, it's OK for the US to just drop a bomb on the person, on the group committing the atrocity. Well, it comes back to, I suppose, whether people ever believe there can be a thing like a just ballum, a just war or something like that. And if they do, then they're able to explain it to their constituency that that's why we did what we did. And you've got to remember that a lot of people... It's not just Trump that that does this without any support from his constituents. There's a lot of people that clamour for something to be done and they're screaming about things to be done. Often the people making the weapons and yeah, the tanks it and could, the Yeah, it could arguably, but mm. often there's a whole heap of other people in the streets that have got nothing to do with mm. armaments factories or anything like that, but yeah. they're raging against whatever it is that's going on somewhere else. And, like... My feeling is that apart from colonial powers like Britain and France, no one gives a toss about what happens in Africa. The US really isn't invested there unless they see what's happening in a part of Africa as sort of extending the arm of ISIS or they're moving from the Middle East to Yemen or what I think is going to happen, they're going to move totally from that sphere and they're going to come to Asia and they'll turn up in the Philippines and Malaysia and other places close to us mm. and that'll be the next theatre and we will be really interested then mm. very focused down here in this vast continent with 20 something million people as to what ISIS's next move is mm. because it's going to be in their backyard. Because mm. you were saying the other day that uh, that they seem to be moving into the Philippines. Yeah, mm. yeah. There's there's a lot going on. The, the, that Moro Liberation Front have been going off for years. There, they've tried to suppress them. It seems as though they can't. They they undertake the occasional kidnap. A lot of Philippine Muslims have turned up in the Middle East and are training there, just like Indonesian Muslims and Malaysian Muslims have gone there. They're going to bring all those hard-earned skills back to this sphere. And, as I was saying before, they're incapable, I think, the radicals, of, of ever being able to live peaceably with anybody else. And the Philippines, to me, it's almost a dysfunctional state now with the new president they've got, who, again, is one of those characters that's 
popularly elected, but completely off his chops. What's his hair like? I'm beginning to think. There's yeah, a, yeah, a, there could be something. To, we'll see. That's Trevor. That's why your and my hair are thinning, because um, <laughs> we're still reasonably sane and won't leap to weapons as the immediate way to deal with something. But I, I just, I think it's 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 like a global. Thing. It's metastasizing. Um, it is. I agree with you on yeah. all that. But I, I'm going to draw a line in the sand. Yeah. I'm going to say when the US president, because let's face it, you don't need Congress or the Senate. You do if you're going to declare war. But what's been happening is the US just operates without declaring war. And that just requires so does Russia. the opinion of one man. So does China. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this is Why our we... ally we're talking about. Let me finish here, <laughs> right-wing Tony, is... We've got one man deciding, I feel like dropping a bomb. And Malcolm Turnbull comes out and says, great decision. Fully, fully support that. And I say he shouldn't have. He, we should be saying, don't drop bombs willy-nilly without at least consulting the Western world and well, getting some agreement. Cu- if not the United Nations, yeah. at least... At least, uh, you know, get a dozen... But if you roll the tape on, the Western world applauded it. And here we've got the only example of bipartisanship I've seen in many a year when Comrade Shorton has come out and applauded it just like Malcolm Turnbull, who I've got no real affection for, supported this. So I'd be hard-pressed to find a Western country that after the event didn't say it was a great idea. Fantastic. Well, that's all the more reason why he should get some permission from no, the rest ret- of the world before doing it. Is fine too. Ratification, it's fine. As the attorney of the West, he's delivered and they've ratified what he's done. I think legally you and I both agree that's fine. I don't have a problem with it. I think I'm going to lose my iron fist. <laughs> I think I'm losing the iron fist moniker and I'm going to hand it over to you. You're going to be right-wing Tony iron fist at the rate you're going. Okay, slight change of pace. Uh, you enjoy uh, rugby union, right-wing Tony? Yeah. And yeah. you'd be familiar with Sonny Bill Williams. Yes. And uh, Talented man. Mm, so, dear listener, Sonny Bill, all-black star, has made a, um, a conscientious objection to some sponsorship on his jersey. There's a Bank of New Zealand logo which was on the collar of his jersey and without checking with anybody, he just put a type of brown tape over that so it couldn't be seen when he was interviewed or appeared on television during the course of the game. So, um, uh, the um, a spokesman for the bank said Williams was entitled to have religious beliefs. So they were a bit... They haven't kicked up a fuss. But on behalf... And I don't actually like rugby union. But on behalf of the sporting public or just the general population, I object because, well, I think, Tony, that this could this could create a new legal clause called the Sonny Bill Williams Clause when you're, when you're drafting a sporting contract in the future and you're about to... It spits out of the out of the printer and you as a junior lawyer you're handing it to the partner in charge he's going to say just checking you've got a sunny bill clause in there have you and that'll be the clause tony which should say this is in the uh, contract say between the aru and sunny bill williams is if you don't like one of our sponsors and decide to cover up the jersey that's fine have your religious conscientious objection but if that causes us to lose some of our sponsorship money we're just going to deduct that from your pay packet. Yeah, well, like, clearly, 
I haven't seen the contracts these um, thespians sign, but one would expect that that they're reasonably comprehensively drafted and that they have, as we both know, morals clauses in them and often um, in some codes there's more transgressions than in other codes and you see the outcome of a morals clause being broken if the game or the club or, or the code or whatever is brought into disrepute then people are sacked or they're fined and that happens regularly and you see it in the press. So it would seem to me that Sonny Bill, on the face of it, and I don't, haven't seen his contract, but I would think that it would be a term of the contract that would require to, you to wear the game uniform on mm. game day. And if there was a special union for a special event, like an Indigenous match, then you'd wear the Indigenous uniform and you ought not refuse to put the Indigenous uniform on even if you weren't Indigenous, because that's what your contract requires you to do. And I agree with you entirely that this is a, a reverse of the normal morals clause. Normally it's coming from the top down. This time it's coming from the bottom up. And he's, on the face of it, one would think if that's the case, that you're required to wear the uniform that the club requires you to wear and then you deface that uniform in some way then you're in breach of your contract and that a consequence of a breach ought to be that there's a consequence for you and depending on the nature of the breach that Mm. consequence ought to be applied because otherwise you open the door if someone is a fascist a right-wing Aryan hate group he's going to put a swastika on the back of his jersey well that's certainly going to turn some heads and um Call, yeah. call me a sceptic, yeah. but if there was such a penalty clause in his contract, mm. I just wonder whether he'd be so keen to to have his objection. I just, I just call me well, sceptic. Well, if it's a penalty, it won't be binding on him because, unfortunately, they're unenforceable. But if, if there's a sanction, but, but it, it follows... Hang on, it would be unenforceable? Well, could... penalties are unenforceable, but, but damages, liquidated damages for right. a breach. But you, you, there would be... One would expect you'd have to expect that you've got to wear the uniform. Mm. Like, I mean, the police would be required to wear their uniform, paramedics, mm. so that they're recognisable and that they, mm. they're part of an organisation. There's a chain of command, there's discipline. You can't turn up with a balaclava on or a band, mm. bandana mm. or whatever it is or other accoutrements on your uniform just to make yourself more attractive as you perform your duties. And so I would imagine that Sonny Bill is in breach... And the Commonwealth Bank probably is worried about brand damage if it were to do anything mm. in relation to this breach. So they'll yeah. probably drag to hell a bloke who put a swastika on his jersey, but they're just going to wave this one through because, mm. for whatever reason, Islam is this protected organisation mm. in the West. And I'm not sure whether it's driven because they're worried about Commonwealth bank branches being blown up or bank of New decapitated Zealand. in yeah. there or yeah. whatever yes. bank it is yes. yeah. it would be because under Islam you're not mm. allowed to charge interest and that's why there's well special... they do actually, they charge a fee for a loan because you'd yeah. have to be an idiot to lend people money and get they, nothing they, for it they do it in um, uh, convoluted language Correct. but to they avoid get a profit yes. so if you're taking a profit truly yes. Yes. whichever way you paint it yes. you're a money lender yes. in the temple yes but dear listener if you're wondering why he's objection to a bank it's because they they in plain English charge interest as opposed to Islamic banks which do it in a more 
convoluted fashion and achieve the same result. So that's Sonny Bill. <laughs> and then the other clause, of course, would be when you're you know, agreeing to sponsor a, a football team and you would go, well, you know, we want our logo on the jersey. Mm. And in the case of Union, there's 15 players on the field. So mm. if at any one time, due to religious objections, somebody mm. declines our mm. logo, we mm. shall reduce our sponsorship payment mm. by one fifteenth. Well, I Thank actually thought Muslims didn't like dancing. Right. Well, that's why I call them the happy clappers. Right. And... If that's correct, then it's it's a sort of a form of a dance, this right. sports. Right. And I would have thought Sonny Bill shouldn't have ever picked up a ball. It's a long way between <laughs> sport, rugby union and a dance. Right wing Tony. <laughs> Dear listener, not too long ago, you looked at your podcast app and saw that a new episode of the Iron Fist and Velvet Glove podcast was available to download. Did you silently think to yourself, wait, a new podcast? I like listening to those guys. If so, then you qualify as a potential donor to the podcast. Your donation will help cover some expenses, but more importantly, your donation tells the boys that they are on the right track and to keep up the good work. A dollar a show is all they ask. Go to their website at ironfistvelvetglove.com.au and click on the donations link. There's a group in America, Black Lives Matter, fighting... And they do. Yes, and fighting for justice for African Americans. A little bit misguided, I think, Tony, because um, Black Lives Matter just banned white people from the group. So if you are white and you want to join Black Lives Matter, they say, sorry, you can't join. Um, You can help in other ways, but you can't join or attend our meetings. What would happen if a group said, well, we're a whites-only group and we don't allow blacks in? People would be in uproar. Of course they would. 18C would be dragged out if it could be made to be relevant in some obtuse way and it would be all on. Comrade Triggs would be banging, looking for people to make claims. This is where the world's gone crazy. Like, you're running an organisation, Black Lives Matter, white people Mm. want to join and Mm. work with you and you say no. You're, You're... People with their identity politics and their... Well, I don't even know where black stops and white starts with mixed-race people because what's the formula? Ah, it's your personal opinion, Tony. It's do you yourself identify... Well, then I could feel black one day and want to join. And they'd say, well, no. And I would have thought, well, it's my personal opinion that I really care. And I do care. I think every life matters. That's the... uh, the crux of taking a position like this so um one of the um one of the comments on this article uh referred to it as uh the clan with a tan <laughs> well that's a happy phrase but um the issue you raise is is an important one but it's everything is skewed everything is upside down the West is bad and everything else is good and so you find that you can't defend things because you're poked into a corner and you're a white old man or whatever it is Mm. that you are and your voice you howl down the moment you say anything. Mm. This is going to present a conundrum for them in the case of Rachel Dolezal. Have you ever heard of her? No, 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 happily no. (laughs) Right. Um, uh, uh, She claims that race is a social construct. 
uh, in the same way that uh, Caitlyn Jenner is able to now identify as a woman. An unattractive woman, uh, anyway. Rachel Dolezal believes that it's simply up to her to identify as a black woman and presto, she is. So she's infamous. Uh, she's currently 39. She's biologically white, but for many years was actually um, a leader in the NAACP, which is the National Association for the Advancement of Coloured People. Uh, she was in that organisation for quite a while until her parents at one point said, hang on a minute, our daughter's not black. And she, it sort of came out that she didn't have any black blood in her body but mm. she then said well I identify as black and she so she felt black yeah. yes and she genuinely does by the seams of it so anyway it'll be uh, Black Lives Matter whether they could accept Rachel Dolezal because in her opinion race as a social construct remains to be seen it'll be litigated I suppose if anyone can be bothered mm. and it as always you stand with your mouth open waiting for a decision of the court Mm. because they continue to surprise me. (laughs) (laughs) Tony, you've been uh, involved in, you know, a little bit about property law and environmental law. Yes, sadly, yeah. The the concept (laughs) of of a river person. Yes. So in New Zealand it's happened where they've they've declared uh, a river a person. Well, I haven't got enough people, clearly, (laughs) if they're declaring inanimate objects to people as well. And now, dear listener, uh, in, in India, they are declaring glaciers as people. Uh, two judges there on a court stated uh, that glaciers have the status of legal entity in order to prevent glaciers from melting. Um, so, yes, uh, inanimate objects are, are being given human characteristics at law. Um, Tony, my view was that... If you want to protect a glacier or a river or something like that, just pass some environmental law to protect it, and it's fanciful to call it a person. You're just, you're just creating an alternative truth, alternative fact that, that puts plain English... Well, just, it just doesn't make sense. No, no, it's, it's curious. I, um, like I just thought it was a quaint New Zealand thing, but clearly it's catching on. In other parts of the world, which, um, and it sort of begs the question, like when the river meets the sea, sort of what happens there to those two persons? And is someone less of a person at that point or more of a person? And as you said, glaciers melt, so are they going to be less of a person? And, and indeed, if they are persons, then one would expect that we ought not to allow anyone else speak for them at a tribunal or a court so if the river wanted to join the proceedings then it would need to find its way to the court or perhaps <laughs> happily given the predilection of some of our courts the court would find its way to the river <laughs> set up on the bank and then take a statement as the river passes it truly is just too silly for words like you, you sort of think oh no that can't be right like you know I've heard a lot of things today on the radio, but that can't be right. But I think if if they're people, then they've got to turn up, they've got to front up, they've got to be liable for costs in the event that the proceedings goes against them. And I'm not sure how you would enforce an order against a river or a glacier for that matter. 
Pre- let pre- it. Presumably, the river needs a guardian to speak on well, its this behalf. Well, this is where and, it gets. This is where yes. you see. As I was going back to New Zealand, needs more citizens. Clearly, what this is all about is that it's another avenue for some lunatic to appear in proceedings and stop a coal mine or stop an atomic power plant or something else because they appear for the river. Mm. And the proceedings could go on for some time, I would think, because they'd always be able to say, well, I've got to take instructions, Your Honour. I'm the having difficulty. I'm just having a bit of trouble contacting my client. Like, if they think they're going to have trouble getting Clive Palmer's nephew, well, wait for this. Like, the fire will uh, recede, no doubt, and they'll have to follow it up. Or maybe they go to the source of the river, and that's where they'll be able to take instructions. Here's the danger, though. Even if you mm. like the idea of helping protect rivers, mm. if you've got a guardian, then you've got two or three or a tribe of people who are the guardians speaking yeah. on behalf of the river. But if you've got an environmental legislation, then, then anybody can take action on, on an, envi- an environmental basis to stop a coal mine or something if they feel there's been a breach of the environmental Well, uh, if controls. it, if it impacted right? the river in mm. some manner or form... Uh, either in a deleterious yeah. sense or, or that people were merely using the river without permission to take product up and down the river, mm. these guardians... Are, and that's, that's the real danger with this. Who's the guardian? And um, what if another guardian turns up from downstream and says, well, actually, uh, my part of the river doesn't really agree with the source yes. or upstream? And when a river yes. runs through a number of countries... Who is the guardian, and is it a different river when it enters uh, Judea or Palestine or something to the river it was when it was in Israel or somewhere else? Like, yes. it it is just silly. Mm. Like, but we live in a world where you are amused. Yes, uh, but just think of the Australian example. If, for example, there was a well, the some mine river, yeah. or some something like that going to happen, and there was an environmental mm. group who said, "No, this shouldn't proceed because of some environmental issue." V- virtually anybody can make the claim to take it to court to stop well, the. No, is I imagine, or I am mainly the government. Well, you, the, the environmental legislation uh, always stipulates who has standing, right. who can appear. So there will be in the legislation a list of people who have the right to take action. And this has been the problem dogging the Adani mine and others around the country, that people that don't even live in the vicinity and have no physical connection whatsoever. Yes. Someone on the eastern seaboard can take issue with a mine in the Pilbara and the legislation, if it's broadly drafted, to capture someone that has an interest and that if the term interest isn't defined with any precision, then basically, yes, you could have a passing interest in anything that was going on on the planet and therefore you can turn up. And this is the thing that confounds me with... And I haven't looked at anything to do with the New Zealand legislation about the river being a person, but you'd have to suspect that the legislation itself will stipulate who is... 
presumably a limited number of guardians or a, yeah. a, 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 some sort of a Maori tribe, mm. which the, therefore the number of potential plaintiffs or action takers mm. could be actually less than under normal environmental... No, they uh, may not constrain it. Yeah. They may just add another plaintiff. Right. The river may True. become another participant. And mm. I wouldn't have thought mm. left-wing lunatics would for a moment countenance that the number right. of potential plaintiffs, plaintiffs could be diminished... Yes. They're just looking for another avenue to attack something. The difficulty in these proceedings, right-wing Tony, mm. will be determining the sex of of the uh, of the river. Or oh, the I, think, I probably think a river's intersex, Trev. Well, my personal view. Can I refer you to a scholarly article on this, uh, published in Progress of Human Geography? And I'll just read an abstract about this. Um, This paper thus proposes a feminist glaciology framework with four key components. One, knowledge producers. Two, gendered science and knowledge. Three, systems of scientific domination. And four, alternative representations of glaciers. Merging feminist post-colonial science studies and feminist political ecology, the feminist glaciology framework generates robust analysis of gender power and epistemologies in dynamic social ecological systems, thereby leading to more just and equitable science and human ice interactions. Can I put that to you as a worthwhile article to study before you (laughs) go further? Well, you'd certainly have no trouble getting to sleep at night (laughs) if you launched into that. Oh. No, it's just, yeah, it's silly. <sighs> if you think all this is silly, uh, there is a forum you can attend in the UK in July, uh, the Academy 2017. One of the topics they'll be discussing is, instead of society, we can be said to have transient groupings of individuals who flock together only to best pursue special interest claims based on identity or ask for handouts for their particular victim claims. Real society, on the other hand, is based on subjects forming voluntary groups to pursue common undertakings. That is, they come together not because of who they are, but because of what they want. And the world is moving away from that, right, Wing Tony? We're just splintering into little groups and, and moving our little group forward and bugger the rest of society. So if you're in the UK in July, there's one you can go to. Yeah, I'll probably miss it. But anyway, <laughs> there you go. I think there's a dog race at Dapto that I want to follow. <laughs> then. Okay, final article. This, dear listener, is a long one if you, if you end up reading this one. But uh, on the topic of, of tolerance and forgiveness, and we hear a lot about tolerance and... Um, and people claiming to be tolerant. And this is a really interesting article that says that perhaps people aren't that tolerant, it's just that they don't care. So um, a, a couple of different stories here, and bear with me. Um, one was uh, in Chesterton's The Secret of Father Brown, and basically it told the story of a nobleman who killed his good-for-nothing brother, and he disappeared and then came back and the town was prepared to forgive him. And the local priest said, well, I want to see genuine remorse before we forgive this guy. And the townspeople were, well, you were just 
a very intolerant sort of character. Well, you know, come on, forgive and forget. Anyway, what they then discovered was instead of the really nice brother having killed the good-for-nothing brother, in fact, it was the good-for-nothing brother who had killed the nice brother and had assumed his identity. And the town was in uproar and refused to forgive this guy. And meanwhile, the priest took the same view. Well... If he shows true remorse and is sorry for what he did, then, you know, I'm prepared to forgive him. And that sort of illustrates that in the first case, the people weren't really forgiving anything because they just didn't see anything to forgive. They were quite happy with the situation, the loss of the good-for-nothing brother. And uh, under the guise of tolerance, they said they were tolerant, but in fact, uh, they just didn't care happens a lot in our current society, right-wing Tony, where people claim, oh, I'm very tolerant of, of gay people and of marriage equality and uh, all these other issues, when in fact they just don't care at all. It doesn't, doesn't mean... Doesn't touch them. Doesn't touch yeah. them. It has no, no bearing no. to them. It offers no threat to them mm. or their family, and so they have no skin in the game. Mm. So they can uh, let it slide. Hmm. So uh, this article comes from a blog called Slate Star Codex. It's a very um, well-subscribed blog and it's been going for a long time. And this blogger, he can remember at one stage when Osama bin Laden was killed and he made a comment which wasn't, isn't it great that Osama's dead, but it was a kind of, well, thank God that saga's all over. And a lot of people on his blog said, made comments, oh, you shouldn't be celebrating the death of a man like that's terrible thing we should be beyond that and at the time he thought oh gee maybe I've been a bit harsh like gosh people are so tolerant you know they're more tolerant than I am and then not long afterwards um, his following by the way was largely left wingers so you probably haven't subscribed to that no I missed that one (laughs) a short while later might have been at mass that (laughs) a short while later Maybe a long way later. Margaret Thatcher died. The very same people... A saintly woman. uh, (laughs) The very same people who said, oh, you know, you shouldn't celebrate the death of Osama bin Laden, were literally dancing in the streets on his blog page, ding-dong, the witch is dead, and celebrating her death and applauding it, and and it just sort of struck him. This is one of those situations where so-called tolerance isn't tolerance at all. No. I, I, my per, personal view is that the left probably are the most intolerant group mm. that you could come across. Um, in one of your recent podcasts, you talked about Hassan Ali not being able to come here because of um, clearly intolerance that was offered to her. And you see it around the planet. Um, certain professors aren't allowed to give talks at universities or they're hounded out or screamed down and Israel's a good example if anyone Jewish happens to turn up the hate brigades are out in full strength yet these are supposed to be centres of learning and tolerance for that matter and you go to university arguably for an exchange of ideas but they're only interested in pursuing their own ideas but in a lot of ways I don't sort of think much of this is new it may just not have been written about before I had a favourite poet when I was young and it was William Butler Yeats and in one of his poems, might have been Easter 1916, I can't remember which one, but he talked about the bad being full of passionate intensity while the good were basically, and he used a phrase like asleep at the wheel, but it was, mm. it was more elegant than that. Mm. 
Dear listener, in a bit of post-production editing, I'll just uh, refer back to that poem. It was The Second Coming by Yeats, and the most famous lines of which are, Things fall apart, the centre cannot hold, mere anarchy is loosed upon the world, the blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Uh, so you're spot on with the Ayan Hersey Alley. Mm. Uh, that's where I was going to head with this mm. because, the, um, as we mentioned in the last podcast, the vitriol that was levied at her by mm. this group of women. Of women. Mm. Had you said to them, do you consider yourselves to be tolerant people in you relation to, to, to gays and mm. apostates and everything mm. else? They would have said, oh, yes, yes, yes. Mm. But there were issues that... To a large extent, they didn't care. Mm. Uh, on Ayan Hersey Alley, who was directly mm. their enemy, they well, really she was cared. showing them up mm. for their hypocrisy, mm. like that they can stand by and see young girls genitally mutilated. Mm. They can see young girls married to men that are decades older than them. They can see a crazy regime where the divorce laws favour men and don't favour women, mm. where men can easily divorce a woman and a woman can't easily divorce a man. They live in a... Well, they would happily like to live in a, a system of Sharia law where a woman's evidence is worth half that of a man's, where in an intestacy uh, situation where someone's died, where the woman gets less than a man. Hersey Ali is showing them up they're not feminists at all. Mm. They have sold out a long time ago in mm. terms of, like, we all know what's wrong mm. in terms of how people treat women. And we need to stand up for women and make sure that they're not oppressed and that if a woman's being beaten in any situation or, or under extreme duress, that, that everyone, men and women, stand up for those people. But the, this group of women weren't feminists, far from it. Mm. And they're apologists for a shameful situation. Mm. Mm. Very good right-wing, Tony. On that moment, our lives have returned from the beach. We will conclude this episode. Thank you. Well done. Thanks, Trev. <laughs> well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, first up, Tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe on their behalf, on their phone, and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon, and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really, the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from... A dollar fifty Australian to I think ten dollars and various ones in between. It's really what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, is it worth more than that? Less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't 
listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners, and that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.